you want to be taking your Bibles out and open them up to the book of First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians. We'll be studying from there in just a moment as we uh, continue in our survey of that book. While you're taking your Bibles out and turning there, I just ask you to remember what we've already talked about from this book. Uh, going back to chapter 1, Paul writes back to this church after he's been separated from them for uh, a, a decent length of time, knowing that he didn't get to spend much time with them. He probably spent more time apart from them than he has with them, uh, since he only spent a total of about three weeks in the city of Thessalonica for, before being run out by the, the Jews and the Gentiles of that land. Um, as he leaves, he is greatly concerned and worried about this congregation, and he sends Timothy back to encourage them, to try to uh, strengthen them, but also to bring a message to him. What has become of the church in Thessalonica? Uh, and we learn very quickly in chapter 1 that word of their great labor, of love, patience, of hope, and work of faith um, is what Timothy brought back. This church has been growing significantly in his absence. Uh, and there are many things that are going on in this church that are to be commended of them and are to be exemplified by us. Uh, leading sometimes for us to read the letter of 1 Thessalonians, I think there's really just absolutely nothing wrong with this church that Paul found. This is just a, a, a letter of, of, admonition, or of, of encouragement. Uh, but he does have a few things for them to think about. And as we get into chapter 4, we're going to look at some of those. He's really wrapping his letter up at this point. He's getting to the end. Now we're going to have two whole chapters, but I assure you Paul didn't write chapter 4 and chapter 5 at the beginning of these sections. He is thinking about the end of this book as he starts to write this. In fact, he begins verse 1 with the word, finally. He is wrapping everything up and calling to an end. And, and what he's going to bring to them here in chapter 4 verses 1 through 8 is the revelation that God has a will for this church. This church that's been doing well, this church that has been working hard and have experienced great affliction, but through that affliction have been faithful to the Lord. He's got a message for them, and that is God has a will for you, and it is for your sanctification or for your holiness. Why don't we read those verses together and we'll talk about them. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of, and, uh, advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such." As we also forewarned you and testified, for God did not call us uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God who also has given us his Holy Spirit. So as we get into this today, I wanted us to think a little bit about this message that he gives to them and, and really the timing of this message that he gives to them, but also how this message can apply to us as well today and what we can take from it. And as I already said, in, in a, he, he is very thankful for the message that he's heard from Timothy, and he's rejoiced with this news. But as he leaves this admonition, Paul apparently he reveals that he differs a little bit from common belief and common uh, thought today, and that is that if, if something is doing good, well, you just we leave well enough alone. 
many today don't seem to think that there's any way for you to become stagnant in your faith. If you've done something good, well, then that's, that's, that's good. You just, you just keep it on. And of all the Christians of the New Testament, the Thessalonians seem to be the people that Paul could have sent such a message to. He could have sent back and said, I've seen your labor and I've seen your work and I've seen your faith. I've seen that you've, you've persecuted or been persecuted and you've endured. I've, I've seen your great uh, love for God and how you received the word as if it was the message of God and not the message of man. And, and you all, you've done enough. Take a rest. You've secured your place in heaven. You have nothing more to worry about. But that's not how Paul approaches them. After all, everything that he said, all the good that they've done, he said, don't give up. He tells them, you've done good, but there's room for improvement. You can abound, and you should abound, more and more. He's telling them to keep pressing on. These Christians, they had so many great temptations that set right in front of them. Temptations to leave the Lord because of the persecution, but also temptations to, to walk away from the Lord because of the allure of Satan. Satan was all around them in the city of Thessalonica, constantly plugging and, and, and tugging and pulling at their hearts to turn them away from God. And it is easy for a, for a church to... To, to, to have such growth that this church had, to have such success as this church had, to sit back and say, you know what? It's time for us to rest. We've done well. It's time for us to rest. And that's not what Paul wants these Christians to think. Do we get a rest? Are we going to rest? Absolutely. God has a rest planned for us. But it's not here and it's not yet. Until then, we need to continue to grow. We need to never settle and think enough is enough. And so Paul, if he was to quote Peter, he would say, you need to, you have knowledge that's wonderful. Add to your knowledge virtue. And add to your virtue kindness. And add to your, 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 your kindness self-control. He, he would have encouraged them to continue to look for areas in which they can grow themselves. And so in a sense, that's what Paul is telling these Christians. You have been victorious over affliction, but the fight isn't over yet. And you, can no longer, uh, you cannot plan to just rest on your laurels. Uh, that, that's such an interesting phrase that I never really understood the background of. The phrase, rest on your laurels, looks back to this time of ancient Greece when someone would go and they would compete in the, these Roman and, and Grecian games, and the, winter, the, the winner would get a crown made out of laurel leaves. You know, if you've ever gone up into the mountains and found mountain laurel growing in the mountains, and those long leaves, they would take those and they would form them into a crown. And so this phrase, to rest on your laurels, means to rest on your past accomplishments, to, to rest on your past victories. And Paul makes it very clear there's been a wonderful victory won at Thessalonica. One that he didn't even expect. He, he was not sure what to expect coming from there. And there's certainly been great work going on. He's telling them it's not time to, to sit back and, and bask in your past triumphs. Don't forget God still has a will for you. And he continues revealing God's will to them as we continue on, just the same as it is today. In verses 3-5, through five, he opens it saying, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now that phrase, sanctification, um, it means that God wants them to be sanctified. That's a, a pretty easy, alright, well sanctification is something that has been sanctified, but what does that mean? What, is it, what does it mean for me to be sanctified? What does it mean that God wants me to be sanctified? And, and one thing that will help us maybe to understand that is the Bible uses this term interchangeably with the word holiness. 
Over and over again, we see sanctification, sanctified, becoming holy or being made holy and holiness being used almost one inside the other. And another term that we sometimes find for a holy person is the term saint. And again, as we track that word back, what we find the definition of it is it simply means a person who has been set apart or a person who has been sanctified. So when we come down to, and we boil this all down, when God's will for us is our sanctification, what is He saying to us? He's saying, I want you to be set apart. I usually think of a wildlife sanctuary because that's just how my my brain thinks. There's a, a place set apart for wildlife to live. But whenever I was trying to define this to our children's class and the, the older kids' class, as we got to this in, in um, our study of numbers and God makes it very clear in the book of Numbers that He wants His people sanctified. And there are many sanctified items. And we had to finally just stop in class and say, what does that word mean? And so I told them about our toothbrush in our laundry room. We have a sanctified toothbrush in our laundry room. And, 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 and you had better not ever use that toothbrush to brush your teeth. You will regret it immediately. Um, that toothbrush isn't made of any different material. There's nothing special about it. I'm pretty sure it came in a pack of other toothbrushes which made their way into our bathrooms, but this one made its way into our laundry room. There's nothing special about this toothbrush. It looks exactly like the other ones. It's got a plastic handle and it's got scrubbing little bristles that you can use to clean stuff with. There's no real difference except for the fact that we have set it apart for cleaning stains and grime and all sorts of nastiness out of whatever article of clothing that we may have been wearing that got filthy and the laundry won't, uh, the, the washing machine won't be able to get that out. And so we, we give it a little bit of help with some, with some scru- uh, laundry detergent and this toothbrush. There's something different about that toothbrush, and that is its purpose. Its purpose is drastically different than the purpose of all the other toothbrushes in our house. Um, and, and if you use it for anything other than your pur- that purpose, you're going to find very quickly that this is disgusting to you. Or if we're going to use, continue using Bible words, this is profane. Whenever we read in the Bible about sanctified, holy, profane, these words, it's talking about something that God has set apart for a certain purpose. And if it's not being used for that purpose, if it's not being used for that will, then it is profane. It is unclean. It is an abomination to the Lord. And as easy as we understand that with that toothbrush, and if you were to stick that thing in your mouth, you'd be ready to throw up. That's the way that God feels about sin. And so he calls for mankind saying, I've got a will for you, and it is your sanctification. You have been set apart from the world. And he wants us sanctified. But in what way? We read over in Colossians chapter 3, he tells the Colossians about, there's so many different types of sanctification that we read about. In Colossians chapter 3, as Paul writes there to the Christians in Colossae, he talks about how they have put to death their members uh, which are on the earth. And he talks about removing fornication, uncleanliness, passion, evil desire. You go down a little bit further, he says that anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Don't lie to one another. These things are all put away. You have been set apart to a different sort of speech. You've been set apart to a different sort of thinking. In fact, he tells them the part of thinking that you should be set apart towards in verse 12 of chapter 3 is tender, tenderness and mercies. Kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering tells them to forgive one another as Christ forgave you. He said you've been set apart to this purpose. And this old purpose this is, def- is defiled. It's profane before God now. And what did all this result in? It results in verse 17. We sang this uh, just a few minutes ago. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. 
Being sanctified, being set apart. That's the way in which we show God our thanks for Him setting us apart, for Him making us holy, for Him sanctifying us. And so, what are we talking about here? We can also look at Romans 12. Romans 12 is another picture of our sanctification. Verses 1 and 2 tells us that our lives are to be living sacrifices. They are not to be conformed and look like the world. They're to be transformed from it so that through our transformed lives we may know and the world may know what is the perfect and, and good and holy will of the Father. So through our sanctified lives, when we are being sanctified, we're being set apart, we can help other people see how they need to be sanctified as well. So here in 1 Thessalonians 4, what exactly is he talking about when he says God has a will for your sanctification? As he continues on, he says that will is to abstain from sexual immorality. And so all the different aspects of, of, of sanctification that he could talk about in these passages, for Thessalonica, he said you all need to know about this. You need to know about sexual immorality and the dangers of it. Well, the first Thessalonians, uh, the Thessalonian people lived in a very sexually immoral world. And sometimes I hear people talk about how, how bad the world has gotten today. And I don't disagree. The world has gotten very bad today. But I don't know too many temples up on the hill that are just filled with people that are begging you to come in and commit sexual immorality with them. I don't know of too many situations like what was going on here where people's houses are literally plastered in the dining room with depictions of, of sexual immorality. And, and as we've uncovered through archaeology, a lot of these cities, that was a common thing, was to, to depict these things everywhere from inside the house to outside the house. It was very important to them. It was a part of their religion. It was a part of their everyday life. And this is the culture that Thessalonica lives in. The, the Christians there walk in. And he's, and he's reminding them, abound more and more. Don't give up. Don't, don't rest on what you've done. In fact, be very aware that God has a will that you would be set apart from the very culture that you live in, which is so steeped in sinfulness because of sexual immorality. He urges them, possess or control your own bodies. And I have to wonder how many problems in this life could be resolved if more people... More people could strive for control of their own bodies. And sometimes when that gets too hard and, and, and people just do whatever they want, they say, well, you know, we, we really couldn't help it. We did, we're just doing what animals do. We're just, we're just doing what we were created to do. After all, we're just, we just have an instinct, don't we? And I would argue that in that moment, yeah, these people are wild and they're out of control. And certainly they are acting like animals, but we have to remember God has set us apart not just, we should obviously be able to see that from the animal world, but set us apart from the things that, that fill and, and, and defile the world around us. And we need to combat that. Whenever Paul writes here, we need to see that there's, there's a little bit of militant action going on. Paul has, has been so elated by, this, by these people, but he's also calling them to a battle. Don't forget where you live. Don't forget the enemy that is all around you. And you be prepared to fight for the will of God in your lives. So how do we do that? How do we today look at the world around us and fight to be set apart from that world? And it begins, I believe, in 1 Corinthians 15.33, which Paul wrote there saying, don't be deceived. Don't be tricked. Don't, be, uh, don't mistrust the fact that you can just run with any crowd you want to and not be influenced by that. He said the people that fill your lives will affect you. And I would say that we could even take that just a little bit more, boil it down. And it's not just the people. It's the influences of those people. 
The influences that we allow to infiltrate our heart and our eyes and our mind and our ears, these things can have a great impact on us. So how are we filling that time? How are we filling our heart and minds? Did you know? Did you know that there is roughly, in in the United States alone, there is roughly 18 million people currently addicted to alcohol? Alcohol dependent, we say, because that sounds a little bit better, I guess, than addiction. 18 million people in the United States alone that are addicted to alcohol. 4.2 million are estimated to be addicted to marijuana. Being illegal in many places, it's a little bit harder to get an exact number on that. 4.2, 4.2, 18 million addicted to alcohol, 4.2 addicted to, to, to marijuana. So that puts us somewhere around 22 million people with these vices. There are 40 million Americans who regularly visit pornography sites. I would say 40 million people who are addicted to pornography. Blows alcohol, blows marijuana, blows almost all vices that we can have an addiction to in our lives out of the water. In fact, It generates $2.8 billion in the United States alone every year. And I want us to think about this for a minute. Of that 40 million people, I think we look at this sometimes, and the reason it's a problem is because we don't know how to talk about it. And we don't know how to think about it. And we've made assumptions about it that are wrong. Did you know that 30% of that 40 million people are female? I think most people think that's a man's problem. It's not a man's problem. It is a a world problem. 30% are female, and of the men, 70% are college age. But did you know that the average viewer began their, their addiction when they were 11? Some even younger than that. You see, oftentimes we we look at these things and we make our mind up and say that this is something that happens in a very specific controlled part of our, our environments, and, and it's, it, it only really affects them, whoever this, this group is that we think. This problem of sexual immorality that God is telling the Thessalonians, look, it's around you, it's around us. And it has infiltrated every aspect of our lives. The most popular day of the week. Surprising to me. The most popular day of the week for viewing pornography is Sunday. It's today. This is when it will be the highest viewed, and that is what we are being called to combat. That is what we are being called to fight against. That is what God has looked down and said, you are to be separated, you are to be set apart from these things. And we live in a society that says, women, men, you can do whatever you want to do with whoever you want to do it, whenever you want to do it, as long as everything is consensual. And if there is a pregnancy that results from that, the encounters are not to be a burden to you. It's not your fault. And, and, and you have every right to mitigate that by ending the life of the child. And we look around ourselves and we just go, man, things have gotten really bad. Things have gotten out of control. Control. The world is full of wickedness. And what we need to realize is Satan is on the offensive. Satan doesn't sit back and think, well, the things seem to be going pretty good. I've done a pretty good job in the past with, with, you know, these, with, with the Holocaust. I did a good job with that. I don't have anything left to do. Satan is constantly roaring around, uh, prowling around like a roaring lion, and he's seeking how he can devour someone. And he is on the offensive right now, trying to gain souls. For hell. And his target has been on the purity of the world that God created. Name, uh, descriptions like virgin, 
chaste and, and abstinence. These are insults. These get thrown around to, to belittle our, our, our youth in, in, in school. We need to look and we need to see that there is a fight waging. And part of the problem is the fact that we have allowed, we have allowed our children and we have allowed ourselves to think that other people have more knowledge on this than we do. I was recently reminded one time of a, uh, very recently of a father who was talking with his child and when he came and said that the little boy at school told me this, he said, trust me, that little boy doesn't have a clue what he's talking about when it comes to the issue uh, that they were going to talk about. But the problem is that because no one had ever talked with this son or with this child before about this, the first person that showed up and said, here's information, he went, that's the truth. And he needed to be retaught and, and, and to see where, what the truth is on it. Part of the reason that we have this problem today is because all that our, our world hears and all that our world gives our children and our families and, and even ourselves is what we see on TV. Maybe what we have seen in, in viewing pornography. Things that we have really no knowledge of and things that aren't really real themselves. Things that are made to be, to be pulled out and, and be trying to uh, appear a certain way. And it has damage for kids as they come into relationships and think, if this doesn't happen, I'm not, I'm not really a man or I'm not really the right kind of woman. And it destroys marriages and it destroys families. And all of this because we can't control our own vessels. All of this because we're not sanctified. All of this because we're not set apart to the will and knowledge of God. And so parents, we need to talk to our children. We need to make sure that we do that. We need to warn our children, prepare them. There are the dangers in this world of immorality. And we need to go to war. We need to never once think that this is not Satan trying to steal our children right from under us. You know, we sometimes remember that song we sing when we teach our children, be careful little eyes what you see. Be careful little hands and ears and mouths. That's a great song to teach them, but we need to, we need to reinforce that. We need to reinforce it in our lives. We need to reinforce it in their lives. Because just how easily these little seeds that will, will grow up in the heart of a child to be sinful, sinful desires and, and actions can be planted just in a commercial. Just in something they hear on the radio. A TV, a, a movie, whatever it is that, that we allow our entertainment to, to cause. We need to be very careful. We need to guard ourselves. We need to guard our families. Whenever we come to, to things such as entertainment and what we allow them to view and allow them to hear. I think it would be good to preview our content. We do that oftentimes at the house. Say, well, we want to watch this movie. Well, me and mommy are going to watch it first. And we'll make a decision as to whether or not we can watch that or, or better yet... Whenever, even after we preview, let's all watch it together. And if there's something that we need, we don't need to be afraid of this. We need to talk about it. We need to get this up. And there may be some things that we just completely, that's off the table. If that's going to be on, the sh on, on our, in our entertainment, we're not going to have a part of that. But if there's things that open a door for our children to say, can I know more about this? And obviously, we need, to use, we need to use discernment and wisdom in this. But we not, need not be afraid to tell our children that, hey, we can be a source of truth, not the world. Not your friends at school. Not, 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 you come to us. And you allow us to help you guide and, and travel through this sinful, sinful world as you're seeking for holiness and you're seeking for God. And we want to make sure, that especially when it comes to sexually related questions, there is no other authority in our household than us. And that's where our families and that's where our children will come. And why is that? And why should I combat this? And why, why is this all important? 
Why does all this really matter? Paul answers that question in verses 6 through 8. He says, I'll tell you the why. I'll tell you the why. It's because you're doing harmful, harmful things to the people around you, and you're doing harmful, harmful things to God. He says, number one, when you do this, you take advantage of somebody else. Someone always gets hurt in sexual immorality. Sometimes the world says, well, it's just, it's just sex. It's not that really big a deal, is it? It's not, nobody's really getting hurt. Someone always gets hurt in sexual immorality. And this is most obvious when it happens within the confines of a marriage. When someone is unfaithful and goes outside of the marriage bond, when someone is unfaithful uh, and, and does things uh, to, to, to violate the, the bond of that marriage. When someone who even within the bond of a marriage views pornography and, and, and we see that, that hurts and it breaks trust and it causes jealousy and it causes wrath and, and anger and bitterness, there's always pain. But even before the marriage bond, when you have people that are not even bound to one another, does, does anybody really get hurt? But do we think far enough into the future to say even, what about your future spouse? Is that not doing pain to them to know that you, you, that you have not saved yourself? Don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. We all have a responsibility to, our, to, to ourselves first and to God. But we need to think about what our actions also do to other people as well. And that's what Paul is saying is when you do, when you're not, when you're not possessing your own vessel, when you don't abstain from sexual immorality, he says you take advantage of and you defraud, defraud your brother. And that, that word there translated brother in the New King James, it's, it is, is a neutral word. It's not just, you know, this is something that you do to another man or to even somebody within the body. This is, this is a neutral word describing this is what you do to mankind. This is what you do to others. You hurt them. And you defraud them. And then we can look at the crime rates even in the U.S. and find that you know, recently I was, I was, I was asked, some, somebody was moving or thinking about moving to another, another city and they asked me what I thought about that city and and me and somebody else were there talking, and we started looking up, and it turns out this city, it was St. Louis, and it said this city is the most dangerous city in the United States to live in. And that blew my mind. It's like, St. Louis? How can that be the most dangerous city in the world? And one of the reasons why, one of the top reasons why, was the high level of sexual crimes that are committed in that city. People get hurt on a constant level because of sexual immorality, because of people who are not in control, people who will not possess their own vessel. So they're hurting and they're robbing other people in the most vile ways possible. And if that's not enough, and that should be enough, Paul should be able to say, because of look what it does to people around you, and everyone should say, you're absolutely right. This is unacceptable. This is uncalled for. But then he adds on one more and he says, also because God is the avenger of such people. And you know, sometimes I, I, I find people that just get so upset. They get so upset when they think people have lost, the judicial, judicial system has failed, when someone is not held accountable for their, their terrible, terrible actions. And I, I agree with them. I, I would love for, for a perfect judicial system on this earth, but we do not have it. Let me tell you who they will never, ever escape. They will never escape God. God is the judge appointed for the cheated. God is the judge appointed for the hurt of this world due to sexual immorality. And He says, I will avenge you. In fact, if we skip ahead just a little bit, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 8. And when we get over here in verse 8, he's, 
He's talking about those who have suffered. He's talking about those who have been troubled. Listen to what he says in verse 8. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I know who you are and I know the hardships you have and I know that it would be... It's terrible what people are doing to you, but don't give up because of that. In fact, remember that God sees you and He sees them too. What they did didn't happen in the closet. It didn't happen in a dark alley somewhere. It happened under the eyes of the God which are opened to the whole world. And He says, I know that you've been troubled, but I also know that the coming of Jesus Christ, you'll finally receive your rest. And those who did not know God, those who did not obey the Gospel, they will have the vengeance of God upon them. And again, it brings us up to another important reason why this is, this, this is such an impactful thing for us is because we're striving as well to find that rest and to not find the vengeance of the Lord. But again, if that's not enough, that it does harm and it hurts and God will take vengeance, well then how about just because of God, period? That's how he ends. He says God's called us to holiness. If you remember that... that nasty toothbrush in our laundry room. It's disgusting to think about sticking that thing in your mouth. In fact, there's not enough toothpaste in the world. There's not enough mouthwash in the world to get me to stick that thing in my mouth. That is just disgusting to me. Likewise, God didn't call us into uncleanliness. He didn't call us to being profane. He called us out of our profane lives. He called us out of uncleanliness and into holiness. And now having been called, and each one of us who has heard the good news of Jesus Christ, has indeed been called. We've been called to come forward and leave sin behind. Are we going to do that? If not, we're rejecting the very God, he says, who came to save us. That's tough language. Rejecting God. That makes my mind go back to to the days of Samuel. When the people came and said, we want a king. And Samuel just hurts. No, how can you do this? And God says, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And you think, how could somebody reject God? And Paul's saying again today, it still happens. We can still reject God today. We're rejecting God whenever we choose to live lives however, however we want to, based upon our desires, just giving in to our own vices. Whether it be in homosexuality, whether it be in pornography, whether it be in in. in adultery, whatever it is that we, that we have just reached out to and said, this is what I want, this is what I'm going to have. What we're really saying is, God, you stay over there on your side because I'm over here and I'm doing what I want to do. And God's will for us is not that we push Him away and that we find ourselves however we want to find ourselves and do what we want to do. His will for us is that we take, He takes us and He sets us apart from those things, from our old worldly desires, from our old worldly heart, into the holy life that He has created for us through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, when we look through all that, and we see Paul opening the the end of his letter, we think, man, that's some really hard things Paul has to say, and it's going to get harder. He's not going to just, you know, I'm going to kind of pitch this in here. He's got a lot that he's going to throw at him at the very end of this letter. But what I hope we come away with as we draw this letter to a close is not verses 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and all the things that God, has, that God has warned us about and all the things that God has told us will happen in, in these sorts of situations. I hope really 
the thing that we come about, and the thing that I have to think was so powerful to this church in Thessalonica is the very beginning of verse 3. These people met with Paul for three weeks before he was violently removed from the city. And they have faced affliction and violence and hate. And people have, have persecuted them and hurt them and taken their homes. and, and, and taken. We, we know from history that they would not have been allowed to eat. They would not have been allowed to work. They would have had so many things done to them. And Paul writes them and says, I know it's really, really hard, but God, the God that created all of this, even though the world esteems you as nothing, that God has a will for you. That God thinks enough about you to say, I have something for you. And maybe today, maybe today as, as we've talked about these things, you think, you know, I, some of the things that we've talked about, they could have described me. Maybe at one time in the past, maybe still today they describe me. Maybe I've not been abstaining from sexual immorality. Maybe instead I've been quite involved in sexual immorality. What I want us to know today is even then, God has a will for you. And that will was instituted at a time when we least deserved it. Romans 5 tells us we were enemies. We couldn't have been farther from God if we wanted to be. And He sent Jesus into the world. When we were not able to stand, He sent a sacrifice to justify us, to bring us hope. When we were out of control and we were immoral and we were impure, we were enemies of God, He sent the most moral, most pure being His very own Son. He sent the answer. He sent Jesus. And He's still the answer today. He's the answer for coming out of this world of sin. He's the answer of coming out of sexual immorality and walking into the, the kingdom of light and living the will of God in your life, being transformed by it, not conform to the world around us and allowing other people to see that radiating through you that they might say, tell me more. Do we need Christ today? I think it is ever more abundantly clear every day that it goes on that we need Christ all the more. And if we've never obeyed Him in the past by placing our trust and our faith in Him, if we've never followed His commands and become a disciple of His and been baptized for the forgiveness of our sins, we need Christ today. Because our lives are lost. But I also want us to know that after, after choosing to do that, just like the Thessalonians, it wasn't like some sort of mystical change happened, a metamorphosis. They were set apart and then nothing ever, just everything went good for them and there was no worries. They still faced temptation and we too. Even after coming to Christ, we'll face temptation. In fact, maybe more so, Satan will try and win us back to his kingdom. And if we're battling and if we're failing because of things like sexual immorality, realize Jesus is the answer has not gotten any less impactful today. We can't give up. We have to trust in Him. We have to utilize the church. And we have to remember, just like with our kids, creating an environment where we can talk, we have to create an environment in this church and in our families where we can talk about our problems. And we can feel confident to come to one another and say, help me and pray for me and lift me up before the, the Heavenly Father who can provide a source, an answer for my sin. I pray that we will always continue to walk with one another and walk forward in the will of the Father. And if there's something we can do to assist with that this morning, won't you please let it be known. Come forward as we stand and as we sing.